You're listening to Embarrassing Family, where we share our weirdest, wackiest, and wildest family stories. Hello, everyone. Today, as our guest, we have Dobie Maxwell, a.k.a. Mr. Lucky. Dobie's uncanny knack for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, all of the time, has spawned some of the most tragically hilarious stories of anyone anywhere. So, Dobie, you said in your bio you were born to motorcycle gang parents. Can you tell me a bit more about what that was like? Uh, yes, I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is the home of Harley-Davidson. Most people don't know that, but that's where the uh, the home office happens to be. It's an interesting fact. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, a lot of people don't. I, I kind of find out the hard way. My father rode with the Outlaws motorcycle. Uh, it's, they don't call them gangs. They call them clubs. But, interesting. Uh, yeah, it is interesting. And uh, actually, I was raised by my grandparents uh, since I was five months old. So talk about, you said weird family stories, man. Yeah. I, have, I am the king of that. Oh, God. I'm lucky to have you as a guest then. <laughs> yeah. It's, one, it's, it's a few times I, I rode on, on the back of my father's Harley. It's one of the most frightening experiences of my life. How old were you when you rode on his Harley? Oh, seven, eight. Oh, wow. That's you very know, young. Yeah, it was very young. And there was there was no uh, sissy bar in the back. I basically had to hold on to his leather jacket, and the leather jacket was pretty slick and slippery. And I was just absolutely scared to death. No helmets either, I'd imagine? No helmets back then, no. They were very anti-helmet laws suck. They don't always get to tell me to wear a helmet. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Oh, wow is you're lucky right. you're still alive. I am very lucky that I'm still alive. Sometimes I wonder, but yes. Can you like tell me a little bit more about your your parents? Sure. Uh, well, my, my dad was just uh, my my grandpa looked at him and said, you know, there was something wrong with him in the crib. I could just never get to him. Oy. And he said, uh, my mom left when I was five months old, and it's uh, one of those situations where I was going to go to an adoption, you know, uh, adoption agency. And my grandpa said, I couldn't, I couldn't let that happen to you. You're my, you're basically you're my flesh and blood. I had to raise you myself. And sometimes I wonder if that was good or bad because my grandma and grandmother, or gra- grandma, were married for uh, forty seven years. 48 years and by the time I got there they were just fighting cats and dogs and my grandma was very German and sometimes stereotypes wouldn't be stereotypes if there's not some grain of truth in there and my, my German grandmother was just a, a character and she was a neat freak I was I was preparing for COVID way before COVID ever came around because my grandma would wash and clean and wash the phone and wash the doorknobs off and, and she was just for, for uh, the country Germany to have the word germ in the title it's amazing because there was not a germ within six blocks of our house as a kid yeah, sounds like she'd be uh, pretty helpful during COVID. Well, that's the thing. She would have loved it because she was totally ready. And the funny thing was she would always wash and overwash, and she could iron your shirt while you're wearing it, and you wouldn't even feel it. And then she got a disease called ringworm when I was about It's a 12. parasite, right? Yeah, and it's a disease of filth, they call it. And, and no offense, we, we, all, we all laugh because, yeah, here's the one that's the cleanest of anybody we know, and she got the disease of filth. I guess sometimes germs have to germinate or, or bugs, you know, so you can build up your immune system or something. But yeah, she got Maybe. that. Maybe. And she, she would, it's funny to talk about family stories. She would bring uh, a Tupperware container with soap suds and a wash rag everywhere. When we go out to restaurants, I've never been a kid, she'd oh, wow. so wash her hands and, yeah, right in public. Yeah, she'd bring oh, her own silverware. Very embarrassing. You bring her own silverware out to restaurants, wouldn't trust the restaurant. <laughs> You know, bring her own out of her purse. Yeah, stuff like that. I'm sure the people there love that, all the waiters. and Yeah, it made them feel like, you know, what are you running here? But she was a hospital clean, and she also carried a gun everywhere, everywhere, including church. A cop 38 she had with her. She didn't trust anybody. And And church, uh, too. Oh, my God. Church, she'd have a gun with her, and sometimes she'd pull that gun out, (laughs) and uh, and the cops were with her. She said, what am I going to do? I'm an old lady. Are you going to send me to jail? (laughs) And they never did. So, yeah, she was a pistol-packing granny. 
I would not want to mess with her. No, nobody wanted to mess with her. And she was sweet. On, on one hand, she could be the sweetest thing. Some kid would come over and shovel her snow or cut her lawn, and she'd pass out $20. And, and But but then again, she'd just yell and scream at you. You could never know which sides you're going to get. Talk about the ultimate bipolar experience. I experienced at a very young age. Yeah, it's like the angel and the devil. Mostly the devil, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I get, they get the angel shine through once in a while. So what was your grandpa like? Was he like the same way? Well, no, he was completely opposite. They say opposites attract. He was the wisest, funniest, most patient man I've ever met in my entire life. And if it wasn't for him, I would be dead or in jail for sure. And Grandpa just would take me on long walks. He had a, a, a heart bypass in the 1970s, and this is way before. Now it's common. I think they have you go through a drive-through window and get a heart triple, you know, quadruple bypass. But back then, they took a pizza cutter and they gutted him from his ankles to his throat, and it was just a whole new experience. They had to break his chest, and it was a real big thing. Wow. So he had to walk several miles a day to to get his heart strength back. And at the time, I was probably seven, eight years old, and I would go on these long walks, and he would just open up and great things, all things wisdom, and and ask me what I thought, and if he was, he was the father figure. I think if everybody doesn't have a father, they need a father figure. He was my father figure. Just great. One of the stories that he had, uh, he brought out was, uh, he, he taught me how to play blackjack as a kid. Okay. You know, and you count to 21 and you're, you know, eight, seven, eight, whatever you are. And that's, that's a yeah, number where simple. you can, you can fi- pretty simple, figure it out. And at the time I made a dollar a week allowance. So he divided it up into 20 nickels. Give me a pile of nickels. I said, okay, we're going to play blackjack. I'm going to show you how to play. You know, do you want to bet? Do you not want to bet? Do you want to hit? Do you not want to hit? So we played for a while, and my nickels were gone. I said, okay, well, you learned how to play blackjack. Now let's go for a walk. We went to a walk, and we went to an ice cream place, and he ordered one ice cream sundae. He looked at me. He goes, are you having one? I said, well, uh, I don't have any money. You don't have any money? What happened to your money? (laughs) Well, I I lost it playing cards. You lost it playing cards? Well, I guess you can't have a Sunday. So he bought one Sunday and he ate it right in front of me. Oh, God. And and years later, he said, he he told me, he goes, that was the hardest thing I ever had to do was eat that Sunday in front of you. (laughs) But I wanted to show you that gambling is not good and it takes your money away. And if I told you, you would never understand. I had to show you. And he said, believe me, that hurt me. That that Sunday tasted terrible, but I just I had to teach you that lesson. So stuff like that I, I never forgot. It's for your for your for your own good. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Better learn it as a seven year old than as an adult when you're just gambling away everything and you lose all your money. He was full of lessons like that. If we have time for another one, I'll tell you. He, yeah, he absolutely. was uh, he would call up the school. And he would say, uh, he's not sick. He's with me. We're going on a personal field trip to learn something. He'll be back in school tomorrow. And he would take me in the car. I never knew where we were going to go. Sometimes we would go. Uh, I grew up in Milwaukee, which is about 90 miles from Chicago. I don't know where your listeners are listening from, but They're Chicago everywhere. was a big big city and it had a lot of uh, cultural type things. So he would take me to stuff like a, a musical or a stage play. Or, or something, and he would say, uh, "You don't have to like this, but you have to see it and experience it and make up your own mind." So I would, you know, as a kid, I would see things and some things I liked and some things I didn't, and we discussed it on the way home. Well, what did you like? What didn't you like? And one day he called up the school and said, "Okay, we're going on a field trip." I said, "Where are we going, Gramps?" He goes, "You'll see." We're driving for about an hour. Where Where are we going, Gramps? You'll see. And he took me to a place that was uh, the school for boys, the uh, juvenile hall. I don't know if they have them anymore. And he had arranged a, uh, he knew the, the warden out there and he arranged a, a tour. And, uh, these kids were, you know, pretty, you know, pretty bad teenagers. I was, I was not a teenager. I, maybe it was 10 or 11 at the time. Okay. And it was the most frightening day of my life. There's a show called Scared Straight, which came on yeah. later. This was way before Scared Straight. 
And it was amazing to me how, how the fear, and, and Graham said, okay, I want to show you this place because this is about the age that you are now that your father started screwing up. And if you make a bad choice, this is where they're going to bring you. And when they bring you here, don't call me because I'm not going to come and get you. This is where it is. So think before you do something stupid. And that made a bigger impression on me than the ice cream Sunday did. I'll say that. So we're driving home. And he said, okay, uh, I want you to open up the glove compartment. It's the next test. And he lit a cigarette. He used to smoke Paul Malls with no filter on it, the grandpa kind of cigarettes. You know, he's spitting out little pieces of tobacco all the time. So there was a carton of Paul Malls with my name on it. And I said, well, what's this? He goes, well, this is the age when your father started smoking. This is the age when I started smoking. And I don't want you to go behind my back. I want you to do it right in front of me. So I bought you your first carton of cigarettes. Now, the first one's on me. After that, you got to spend your own money and buy your own cigarettes. But right now, the first one's on me. I said, well, I I don't want to smoke. He goes, okay, well, the offer's still there. Whenever you want it, it's there. So that was awkward. So the third trilogy of the lessons that day where he said, okay, we have one more stop to make. We stopped at a, a bar in Milwaukee. In Milwaukee, there's a bar. The bar, the, the block I grew up in in Milwaukee, of the four corners on the block, three were bars, one was a liquor store. That's how Milwaukee is. It's got the most bars per capita, I think, than any other city in the world. Really? I'm in Hoboken. I'm surprised. That's, really? It's got bars all over the place. Probably a lot of them there, too. I would say that. So so anyway, uh, it went to this, this bar, and uh, it's called Curly's Tap. I'll never forget it. It's a parking lot in the back. So we get out of the car, and the, the door opens up in the back, and two guys are having a fight. And one guy had a pool cue, and he smashed it over the other guy's head. Oh, God. And they were fighting. And my grandpa knew the guy. It's like, you know, hi, Hank. Hi, Al. <laughs> you know, one of those kind of things. Because <laughs> my grandpa was a dispatcher of garbage trucks and snow plows in Milwaukee, and he would have to go to bars like that when all the drivers would go on their shift and they'd be drinking, he'd have to go and, and spy on them. When they, So he knew all the bars in town. So he took me in the bar and he sat me down at the table and said, okay, uh, my grandpa and I, or my son, grandson and I are going to have a beer. I want one big one for him and one big one for me. And I looked at my grandpa and said, I, I don't want a beer. He goes, you don't. Well, this is the this is the age when I started drinking. And I went behind your my my grandpa, my dad's back, and I, I, I drank my whole life. And uh, I, I didn't treat your grandma well. And uh, it's a horrible thing, but... This is the age you're going to start. Don't do it behind my back. So I didn't. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke for that reason. To this day, really, wow. And on his deathbed, he said, "You know, because that was a hard choice to make." He goes, "I couldn't choose it. Your father couldn't choose it. Yeah, you could. You have a better chance to get ahead in life." And uh, so those are lessons that happened to me that I do t- pass on to this day to people. I don't fault anybody for drinking or smoking or doing what they do. That's the way my grandpa chose to teach me, and it stuck for a lifetime. Oh wow! Wow, that's. Very, very important lessons. Wow, that's seems like seems like quite a quite a guy. Yeah, he was great. Because what's the first thing you know? Don't do this, and that's the first thing you want to do. Yeah. So he just used reverse psychology. You know, do this. Like well, do it. Why you do don't want to do it? Yeah, exactly. So he, was, he was three steps ahead of the game. Yeah, he was really sharp. He knew what he was doing. Plus, I think you know, dealing with I guess your father and how he turned out, he kind of didn't want you to end up like that. Yeah, and he, and he said the same thing. He goes, I don't, I don't know what it was. He goes, I didn't have the best childhood, so I vowed that I was going to be a great father. And then I had him, and there was just, it was something off with that kid. I, just, I couldn't get to him. I never reached him. You were on the peak of a house. He said, I knew I, you had a chance. Him, he was just went on the dark side from the earliest, and he never came back. Yeah, it's like nature versus nurture. You know, it's just how he was. Yeah. I guess. I think we all have an individual, uh, you know, uh, equation inside of us and, and the nature or the nurture takes over and you could put the, the nicest kid in the world in a bad situation and he wouldn't be affected and, the, the, you know, and vice versa. So it is what it is, man. I'm trying to still figure out life. The older I get, the more I know I don't know. 
Exactly. Exactly. That's how it is, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So any other interesting family stories? I don't even know where to go because there's so many of them. I had an aunt and I think we all have an aunt Charlene and she was a person that she, she, she behaved so out of, out of the normal. She related to, to dogs and cats better than she related to humans. Do you have anybody like that in your family? I mean, she would, she would kiss the dogs and cats on the lips. Wow. And she had a middle name for every one of them. And she bought Christmas and, and birthday presents. She knew all the dogs. This is out of her mind. And she, she couldn't function in human society. And she was, you know, on a planet all of her own. But boy, she could deal with animals. It's unbelievable. And she never admitted she was wrong. Do you remember a person like that? Oh, yeah. It was always someone else's fault. Never say, oh, you know what? I, I, she she died, and we were at the funeral, and nobody could ever remember when she said, you know, I was wrong. <laughs> Never once. I don't know what, which direction that you want to go, but I have a, a family. When 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 somebody said, you know, odd family people. Yeah. Now, I, I have a brother. We get along really well. My my brother and I never ever raised. I don't, do you have siblings? Yes, I have a brother. Do you get along well with him? Yes. I mean, when we were kids, we used to fight a lot, but now we get along now that we're adults. It's amazing to me that that it usually is the case, and I see why. And I have a, a sister and a half brother, and we fought. My sister and I didn't talk for twenty years. Oh wow! And my half brother, but my brother and I, for whatever reason, in the cosmos, we just got along. We never raised our voice at each other, and he was just was just great. And he he's in a nursing home now. He had a stroke. Oh god! And it's really a sad story. Yeah. So, I, but I go see him, and we talk, and and the way he ate a Big Mac sandwich, I have never met anybody before or since. He would order a Big Mac from McDonald's, and he would eat the top sesame seed bun right off that and then the the patty after that so he'd eat the eat the top bun so he'd eat everything one at a time no no he would eat the top bun and then the patty and then the other part he would eat like a sandwich like a regular hamburger okay and i don't know why he did it but he always said i don't know that's just the way i have to eat it and that's a quirk I've never heard of anybody before or since that has done that before you think like i say you, you pile it up you know like you said you know uh, in layers but nope he did the first layers and then ate it like a sandwich and i'm just talking about weird that is weird i don't know what what it says for his personality but that's how you know he always ate a big mac that way hmm. that's very yeah that's very i've never heard of that before i've never heard of that before well here, here's an idea of, of how it's hard now i i like batman i've always liked batman since i was a kid and i happen to be of this of the age group where the batman tv show was on in the 60s and the batman movie the first one with jack nicholson and michael keaton came out in 1990 it was 89 i believe so i was in high school in 1979 in 1980 that's when i was in high school and i had a car that i painted like the batmobile oh sweet I bat, bats on the side and everybody knew me as batman <laughs> i don't know if you like sports or not i was a ball boy for the milwaukee bucks nba team and my car, you know, I'd park it. And I, the players would have, you know, expensive cars. They were basketball players. And I would park in the lot with the players. And everybody's like, who's got the Batmobile? So I, became, <laughs> I became Batman in high school. And we were at a flea market one time. I'll never forget my brother and I. We were just kind of walking around and having fun and hanging out. And uh, we walked all the way through. And there was a Batman shirt. And again, remember, this wasn't in the mainstream then. The TV show was 10 years before. Yeah. The movie was been about 10 years after. So like right everybody knew who Batman Right in the middle, you know, and it was a Batman shirt, and this guy had it, and it was, I don't know, it was it was 10 bucks, I think, at the time, and 10 bucks is a lot of money, and I didn't have $10, and it was a really cool Batman shirt, and now you see him everywhere, but back then, you didn't see him. It was pretty unique. Yeah. So we went all the way through the flea market, and at the end, my brother looked at me and said, oh, I, I forgot something in the back, and I got to use the bathroom. I'll, I'll meet you out there. So he walked all the way back in the flea market, and with his last $10, he bought me that Batman t-shirt. Oh, nice. And I'll I'll never forget that as long as I live. He goes, hey, you little, yeah, here you go. And he, he pretended like he was being, a, a, you know, mean, but he wasn't. And I, and I remember telling him that uh, 
when he was in the, the hospital in his uh, nursing home, and he didn't even remember it. Uh-huh. He goes, Did I do that? Okay. So, you know what I'm saying? Because goodness and kindness is in his DNA. He didn't do it for any other reason because that was the right thing to do. So I don't know if it, I respect people like that, and I think more of us should behave like my brother did. Yeah, that was very sweet of him. Yeah, and uh, you know I had that shirt for years and years. And I don't have it anymore, but uh, it was just that's the kind of thing that makes you love somebody. That that's to me that's putting your money where your mouth is and walking the walk, talking the talk. Yeah, were were your siblings also raised by your grandpa? No, that's the thing. My siblings were with my dad, and my dad remarried. Okay. And uh, I was raised by my grandparents. So on, on high school, uh, or not high school, just regular school vacations and uh, you know weekends, long weekends, I would go down and spend time and spend with my sister and, and brother and half-brother. And then I would go back to my grandparents' house. And I just never fit in there as a kid. The bikers were all around, and those people are not nice people. Yeah. You know, it's not a, a place to raise kids, that's for sure. And there was all kinds of, you know, stealing going on. And a biker, if you wanted to get in the gang, you, it's called a duck. It's like a fraternity pledge in college. So if you wanted to be in the biker gang, you're called a duck. And the ducks had to do anything that the people in the gang would say, or the club, as it is called. So if they wanted you to, to steal, a, burglarize a house or steal a purse, that that's what you had to do because you were told to as a duck if you wanted to get membership into the club. So a, a lot of times my dad and all the bikers would get all our Christmas presents bought with stolen credit cards wow. and, you know, things. So, yeah. And that was just the way things worked back then. And, uh, you know, you look back on it and it was, it, I don't say it was normal, but yeah. we knew what was going on as kids. And, uh, you know, you look back on it, it's like, boy, how off base is that to have to grow up in a situation like that? So it's a wonder that all of us are still alive and not in major therapy. But, you know, you live and you learn and you go on. Yeah, no, that's true. That's I guess that's good having that your you know that your grandparents were able to raise you and instill those those values in you. Because yeah, I can I could never see what it was like growing up in a motorcycle gang. That's got to be a really really awful situation. Well, it is an awful situation because everybody around in the neighborhood were afraid. Yeah, I mean, it was in black leather and they're all carrying guns. And uh, my father ran a, what's called a safe house at the time. So those there were. Uh, outlaws branches in other cities around there's a big one in chicago there's one in texas and when somebody would do a crime in one of the other cities and they needed to, to lay low for a while they would come up to milwaukee and my father would put them up for an exorbitant amount of money like i don't know i don't remember i don't know what the price was but it was a lot of money per day until they could make arrangements to maybe get them over the border of canada or get them out of town so the heat would would be off does that make sense? Yeah. So we're always having these seedy characters around around the house that we had no idea who they were. He would charge them for meals. He would charge them to put them up. And then, you know, three or four days later, they would be gone. And then sometimes, you know, we'd answer the phone, just, you know, a kid, hello, outlaw houses burn too. You know, they're going to burn the house down and the cops were watching. It's a whole surreal thing. And I can't believe that anybody would want kids to grow up around that but that was his lifestyle and that's what we what we were used to at the time i wanted to be a comedian because i watched comedians on tv and that was a, an escape well you had plenty of material certainly <laughs> yeah but you didn't, you didn't realize it as material because it was just that's how life was yeah it was and, just normal you know, to you a kid wants to be normal wants to be with the other kids you want to play baseball or hang out or just do what other kids do and we were always the freaks you know, and to this day, it's funny, I met a guy decades later, and I told him uh, where my family grew up in Milwaukee. 
and I, I mentioned the streets, and I, and he said, he goes, was it anywhere near the outlaw house? <laughs> I said, we were the outlaw house. Yeah, that was our house. Oh, God. Because my father, for whatever reason, he put a large picture of Laurel and Hardy in the window, you know, in the front window of the house. It was in, in, in Milwaukee. I don't know if you've ever been, I don't know how it is in Hoboken or other parts of the country, but in Milwaukee, there's a, a duplex. A lot of the properties are a duplex, and in the back, it's called a mother-in-law house it's, it's usually a couple bedrooms and it's a single so it's three units on one property so what would happen would be uh, the people that would you buy the house either live in the back and rent out the front two or live in one of the front houses rent out the back and uh, he he would we'd live in the back and he rent out the front two but he would always have that laurel and hardy picture there so the out-of-town bikers that were coming would know which house was ours so so it's like that a make coke, sense? basically yeah, it was a co- it was a code, and that was just thing. And, and a lot of times they go on a run, and a run means you know the the leader says, okay, we're going to go here. So there would be literally hundreds of motorcycles for blocks in front of our house, and waiting for my dad to get in his motorcycle and leave with him. You don't think that scares the hell out of all the neighbors? Yeah, my God, you know, th- those those runs are coming. So you got you got three hundred bikers in a big long line stopping in front of the house. You know that's that's more than trick or treat. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, it's not only scary, it's so loud, too, all those motorcycles. It's loud. To this day, when I hear that sound, I just I just wince. Yeah. You know, I cringe. I hate that sound to this minute. Yeah, I don't blame you. My God. I do a joke in my act, which I just kind of came out of frustration. I said, my mom used to breastfeed me on the back of a Harley going 75 miles an hour. <laughs> you know, she unzips the leather jacket and flips it out. It's hopping all around. By the time I get it, it's butter. <laughs> and it, it just gets huge laughs. And every time I do that joke on stage, a little part of me cringes because it's real sad. My, my mother was a drug addict, yeah. and she, she left our family. She just abandoned our family. I was five months old. My brother was two and a half, and my sister was four and a half. And I don't think you can ab- abandon or take a, a child away from its mother at that age, an infant, without there being some damage there. I really think there is. So I always talk, you know, comedians are comedians because we are dented cans. Mm-hmm. In a high, high school, I worked at a grocery store, and the dented cans would always get penalized. Yeah. You know, it's no fault of their own, but they got stuck in the back, in that cart, way in the back of the store. And that's what comedians are as people, were dented cans. Yeah, like damaged goods. Damaged goods, man. But the, the inside is still the same, but right. nobody nobody looks at it from the outside. It's like there, there's something wrong with us. Yeah. So that's why I always try to, you know, help people out and say, hey, you know, I, you, you got to – Build a bridge and get over it. Sometimes it's tougher than it seems, but what choices do you have? No, exactly. Yeah, you got to just, you know, kind of make the best of it, you know. So anyway, anywhere else we want to go? I don't know, I don't know where you want to go. I'm, I'm trying to make it interesting for you, but this is this are all true stories, man. I read on your bio that you uh, had to testify against your friend twice. What, what was that story? Well, there's a great story for you. We all have a best friend. Now, you grew up in Hoboken. Is that your hometown? Uh, no, I didn't grow up there. I actually just moved there. I, I grew up in uh, Rockland, in New York. Okay. Well, uh, I'm sure you had a friend in your neighborhood, because most people do, boys and girls, usually between age 9 and 11, right around there. You meet the person uh, outside, playing at school, whatever. They're not your family, but they're in your neighborhood, and they become a friend. I had a friend in my neighborhood, and uh, my grandparents were fighting all the time. I wanted to get out of the house, and I was walking past a, a housing project to, to go play baseball. And they were playing baseball. These kids were. I wasn't even paying attention. They hit a foul ball that came within about three inches of my head. And one kid said, hey, kid, you want to play baseball? And that's how I met. It was my friend Tim, and just his nickname became Timbo. 
I don't know why, I don't know when, but he was Timbo. And Timbo and I grew up together. He was six months older than me, but he was a year ahead in grades in school. We did a lot of coming of age things together. We took, you know, driver's license. We, we got together. We, we, you know, we had both had pieces of junk car. And when one of our cars weren't working, we'd borrow the other one. I got him a job at an ice cream store that I was working at. We worked there and just, we did all kinds of things together. And he decided that he, uh, wanted to rob a bank that he used to work at. And, uh, they fired him because they wanted to bring in the $6 an hour rent to cops. And at the time, I was a radio guy, and uh, I had lost my job in Milwaukee because they changed formats, and I lost my job. So I was really depressed. He calls me up and said, hey, you lost your job? Yeah. And I said, man, I'm really depressed. We got to go someplace warm. It was it was December, you know, a couple weeks before Christmas. And I said, I'm going to put a bullet in my head if I don't go somewhere warm. He goes, where do you want to go? And I said, well, how about Las Vegas? We've never been there before. Well, when do you want to leave? I said, well, we leave tomorrow morning. You're not working. I'm not working. Uh, I have a cousin. He was a union carpenter. He wasn't working either. I said, I'll call him. We'll split the, the money. We'll rent a car, go out there, split it three ways. It won't cost a lot. We'll get a chance to just re, you know recharge the batteries a little bit. Okay. So while I was renting the car and picking up my cousin, my best friend Timbo robbed the bank that he used to work at. He had $105,000 of stolen bank money in the back trunk of my rental car oh, in two duffel bags as we drove from Milwaukee to Las Vegas. It took about three days to drive all the way out there. We drove out there. We took turns. And when we got out there, he didn't act like he had a lot of money. And uh, we, we got a room and had two beds on it. So we said, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to sleep in shifts. And he said, well, I'll, I'll go and, and explore a little bit. You guys sleep after we drove for three days. Well, what we didn't know until later was he took the stolen bank money, and he was a head of security at the bank. He knew what the mark bills were and what weren't. So he went to some casinos, and he played some $100 hands of blackjack. He goes, I lost – I found this out later. So I lost a few. I won a few. But uh, I, got, I, I got all the bad money out. So he, and he didn't, we didn't know any of this. Wow. We drove all the way back to Milwaukee. And uh, about 10 months later, he called me up and said, uh, we have to talk. Just talked out of the blue. Now, at this particular time, he bought the no money down real estate courses. You know, they're, they're all over TV. I'm sure you've seen them. He bought one and he bought a couple of houses, which I didn't know he used stolen bank money to put down payments on these houses. I was living in one. I was oh, a road comedian at the time. Yeah. And he, I had no idea. So he calls me up and said, we got to talk. And I said, man, I just drove 10 hours to get home. Can we, can we have lunch tomorrow? I got to talk to you right now. And I knew he was my best friend. And the way he said it, that I knew it was something very important. I knew him he was better than my own brother. I mean, he was my best friend. So I got in my car and I drove to his house. And he said, the kids are still up. We can't talk in here. Let's go outside. And I said, oh, this better be big. He goes, this is the biggest thing I've ever had to tell you. So we walked out, and there's a bridge in Milwaukee, which goes over the Milwaukee River. And it's about three blocks long. So we walked in the middle of the bridge. And he looked at me, and he said, this is the most important thing I've ever had to tell you, and I can't get the words out. Guess. Now, what would you guess if your best friend got you in that situation? And I said, are you gay? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. I don't care. And, I said, and he laughed. He said, no, I'm not gay. And I said, well, did you kill somebody? And why I put being gay in front of killing anybody, I'm, <laughs> I'm not anti-anything. You know, it's just that's what I thought of. Yeah, yeah, I mean, You know, that's what I'm saying. So he's not gay. He didn't kill anybody. I said, okay, I'm your best friend. Just tell me what you got to tell me. He goes, well, remember I told you on the way to Las Vegas that the bank I used to work at got robbed? Now, he did tell me this 
in the car. And I look at him and I said, see, aren't you glad you don't work there anymore? You would probably be a suspect. <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, you did say that. But I, I got to tell you, the FBI is coming down on me really hard. And they asked me what I did on the day of the robbery. And uh, I said, wait, you know who who robbed it, don't you? Still, and he goes, yes, I do. What should I do? I said, well, easy, turn him in, get the reward money, wash your hands of it. He said, I can't do that. I said, why not? And he wouldn't look me in the eye. He said, because it was me. Oy. And talk about dropping the bomb. I said, you got me off the couch to tell me this. He goes, I'm not kidding you, man. And I knew that he was telling me to do I said, well, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do? He goes, I know it's tough. The FBI is coming down on me. They said, they asked me what I did on the day of the robbery. I said, I was with my best friend, Doby Maxwell, in his rental car, driving to Vegas. But you're not, what are you kidding? It makes me look like I planned the damn thing. Yeah. Goes, when they come after you, he goes, if they if they ask you, you can tell them. I just, I had to tell somebody. He goes, you don't know how exciting it was. It was the most thrilling thing I've ever done in my entire life. He goes, you've been on stage. You've been on the radio. I had a trial as a baseball player. I had a, a trial with the Kansas City Royals. He goes, you've done these things in your life, which are exciting. I never found anything exciting until I decided to rob the bank. He said, I wanted to get back at the manager, and I didn't know how. You called me up and said, let's go to Las Vegas tomorrow. That was the sign from above that I was supposed to rob. I said, now, don't, don't bring me a messenger of the Lord. Yeah. That's, he's you know trying to say that it's, it's my inspiration that got him to do that. <laughs> so one thing led to another, and it, nothing happened. They never, they never came. You know, they, they didn't call me. They didn't come over. And, and days became weeks, became months, and life just kind of went on. And this is 10 months after it happened. So now another six months after that happened, uh, I was doing okay in comedy, and I decided that I wanted a convertible. Now, you live in the cold weather. I live in the cold. What did I want a convertible for? I'm saying, what a dumb thing. I sure hope summer's on a weekend this year. You know, I want to get to take it out once. And So it was March. My birthday's in March. It was March 21st, a week after my 30th birthday. And I had my convertible, and I had a comedy gig that I went to, and it was cold, so I didn't have the top down. But I, I stayed late. It was a really good gig. I was having fun with the people, and I drove back. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and I was driving in the worst part of town. And what happened was a drunk driver fell asleep at the wheel going the opposite direction. He fell asleep, went up on the curb, Oy. and he hit an electric light pole. And the light pole was at an angle, and it wasn't knocked out of the socket, but there's live electric wires about six to eight inches across three lanes of traffic. And guess who was coming the other way? Mr. Lucky at 3 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> 30 seconds after this happened. And I couldn't see it until I got right up on top of it. I saw this wire. It looked like, what is it, a rope? Is it a finish line? And I had my seatbelt off at the time, so the, the wire went underneath my front fender and tire and flipped the convertible completely completely upside down. So now I am sliding Whoa. upside down in a Mustang convertible for about two and a half blocks. And I hit a mailbox and that caused me to stop in a hurry. And I bounced off my steering wheel and my gear shift and it broke my sternum. That's the hardest bone in your body to break. I found out I broke it twice. And I don't know if you've ever been on one of those roller coasters. And when you go upside down, you don't know you're upside down when you're upside down. I'd had no idea that my car was upside down. It all happened so fast. So I'm hitting the gas trying to drive somewhere else. And it's just going in. And then finally I realized, Oh no, I'm upside down. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. So it's three o'clock in the morning and people are running out of their houses and I can hear them. He's dead. He's dead. I thought, oh my gosh, maybe I am dead. Then I thought, well, if I'm dead, I won't have to pay off my credit card bill. Well, that's kind of cool. True. It's amazing how your mind slows down. 
And uh, someone said, well, if he's dead, then get his get his wallet. <laughs> trying to rob you. Trying to rob me. It was a bad neighborhood that I was in. So the, the car's upside down. And there was there was a, a space about four inches when the, the, the top had crushed. And I'm upside down. And I could stick my two fingers out of, of the driver's side window and i wiggled my fingers a little bit to his fingers are wiggling he's alive and i thought yay i'm alive and the same guy said well he can't go anywhere get his wallet anyway <laughs> sort it's true so that the uh, ambulance is coming the other way because they, they called it on the drunk driver that hit the pole i was hurt way worse than he was so they came to me and they tied a chain around my car and they put it up on this on the side it was a mustang convertible and they cut the top like a cocoon you know like a, so they opened it up and i came flopping out on the street and i had glass in my hair and i'm bleeding all over the place and i'm laying there and i'm looking up and there's cops and there's paramedics and there's people that live in the neighborhood and i was about a mile away from a, a, a tv station so there was a tv news camera right in my face as i'm laying there and they said hey man you been hurt really bad just let us know you can hear us say something to let us know now what do you say in that situation i'm laying there i looked up i said i've fallen and i can't get up <laughs> and they started laughing i said what are you a comedian or something i said yes so they scraped me up off the street like a skunk and they took me to the hospital and uh, i had to learn how to walk all over again and i had that little beep 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 thing going so that was a, a whole big deal and every my car was gone so every day i had to go to therapy for a couple weeks and then it was three times a week and then it was twice a week so about a month after the car the car accident happened timbo my best friend comes over to uh, out of the blue in the morning at his house that he owns that I live in. And he said, hey, man, you want to go to breakfast? I said, okay. So I, I hobbled down the steps. We lived in an upstairs duplex. I got in the car. I think we're going to breakfast. We're driving for about 30 seconds. And he looks at me and said, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm going to rob the bank again. Oh, no. And that's what I said. I said, you're, you're, you're going to what? He goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn. No, no. Here's what I want you to do. Turn the car around. Drop me off at home. Go drive in Lake Michigan and drown yourself. What are you, a maniac? Are you insane? Yeah. He goes, look, man, you don't have to do this. But he goes, I, I'm going to do this whether or not you approve. All I'm asking you to do is stand in front of the bank. I've got a great costume. I've got a great plan. That bank president was a jerk. I'm going to get back at him. He goes, the only thing I'm asking is if I get caught, which I don't think I will. There's a less than 1% chance that I do. But if I do, sure. I want you to get in a cab and go talk to my mother. And my mother always liked you. She always trusted you. And I want you to tell her that I got arrested for robbing banks. Because if the cops show up and tell her, she's going to have a heart attack and die on the spot. I said, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we have a better solution? Why don't we not rob the bank? Yeah. And we don't have to worry about any of this. He goes, look, th I, this is my thrill. This is my passion. I've had it planned for a long time. Today's the day. And uh, I'll, I'll drop you off if you want, but I'm still going to do it. And I said, will this make you happy? He goes, yes, I'm asking you one favor. Now, people say, well, I wouldn't have done that. I was at the lowest point in my life. I almost died. I didn't have a family. I didn't have a car. I was staying in his house. I said, okay, uh, all right, I'll stand there. So I'm standing outside the bank. And I'm shaking like a three-legged dog, crapping peach pits, going through heroin withdrawal. It's the scariest day of my life. And I used to promote pro wrestling matches at the time. So I hear, 
Adobe Maxwell, is that you? That's one of my ring girls. You know, this really hot, she worked at an office downtown. I thought you were in a car accident. Yeah, I was, and I'm looking across the street. Why are you looking at that bank over there? Well, <laughs> I have a friend who's going to make a deposit, blah, blah, blah. Well, so she thought I was blowing her off. So now I've been spotted at the scene. The first time I wasn't. Now now it's I'm really scared. So we said, now you're going to know the costume that I have. I'm not going to tell you. So I see, coming around the corner, about 20 minutes later, a man in a tuxedo, gorilla mask, with helium <laughs> balloons, and a package. And he's walking like a gorilla gram. You know, he's walking goofy like a gorilla would walk. And I thought, okay, I know it's him. This is either the most brilliant scheme I've ever seen in my entire life or the stupidest. There is no in-between. This is not in the middle. He's either going to get shot or he's going to get away with it. And he said, he told me, he said, once I get inside the bank, I'm fine. He goes, the only time I'm worried is what the, the rent-a-cops let me in. So sure enough, I see the door open up, and he gives a kid a balloon. Kids, why? It's broad daylight. It's morning, downtown Milwaukee. There's hundreds of thousands of people down there. So he gives a kid a balloon, and the door opens up, and the security guard lets him in. So I stood there about 30 seconds. I'm thinking, you know, this is where friendship has limits. The first one I didn't know about. This one I do. This is this is not good at all. So now remember, I can't walk very well. I got a broken sternum. I hobble across the street. I try to look in the bank. I don't see any guns. I don't see any gorillas. I don't see anybody. So I walked to the next block where there's a bus stop, and I'm going to take the bus home because I don't have a car, and he drove, and I had a little bit of money for breakfast. That's it. So I looked back to see if the bus was coming, and I counted five unmarked police cars that pulled up in front of the bank, and the cops got out with their guns drawn. I'm thinking, oh, my God, Timbo's going to get shot. What am I doing? What? Oh, my God. So I can't say anything to anybody. I'm on the, ba- the bus. I ride all the way home. It takes a while to get home, and I don't want to call him. I don't want to get in trouble. How they tap on his phone? I have no idea. So he's not coming over. I don't know what to do. And the, the noon news comes on. The, the network news, the, new, not, the local news, rather. On the, and it said the lead story: a man in a gorilla mask robbed a downtown bank today. And uh, they they said suspect still at large. Oh, so he so he, he got away. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of cheering for him, and I'm kind of not. And it's the most surreal thing. So about a half an hour later, I hear a car pull up in the back, and I look out, and it's him. And he doesn't have any, no gorilla mask, no nothing like that. He's dressed right. He's got his uh, big duffel bag, and he comes up, and he walks in the door. It's his house. He's got a key to it. He walks in with a big grin on his face. He goes, did you watch the noon news today? <laughs> I said, buddy, you're out of your mind. He goes, hey, yeah, they're, they're saying that they, they said the car was wrong. They got the details wrong. It was amazing. And he said, uh, boy, you know, I'm sorry I put you through this. And he handed me an envelope. It was a middle envelope. And he said, there's $7,000 in there. When you heal up from your accident, I want you to go out to L.A. and get an apartment and be a comedian. He goes, you're never going to get famous in Milwaukee. And I said, buddy. I want to take that money. That is stolen bank money. I am not going to take a penny of that money because when you go to jail, I can honestly say that I did not do that. He goes, well, it'll always be here if you want it. Just like my grandpa said, well, the cigarettes will always be here if you want them. I never took those either. So at this particular point, I knew he was crazy and I knew I had to leave. So I healed up from my my, uh, injuries and it was several months to do that. That took a long time. And I took a radio job in Reno, Nevada, as far away from Milwaukee as I could possibly get. And it was a country radio station. I can't stand country music, but I took whatever I could get to get away from him. So I loaded up. I had a Geo Metro at the time, those little tiny cars. I loaded everything up at a Geo Metro and I drove to Reno and I I started my life completely 
completely over. And it was about probably six months into it, and things are going pretty well. I made new friends. I was having fun at my job. Morning radio can be fun. And I got a call out of the blue. Uh, is this Mr. Doby Maxwell? Yes. This is the FBI in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We think uh, you know a so-and-so, Tim. Yes. Well, we think he had something to do with a bank robbery. In uh, Okay, well, that's interesting. He was my best friend. I think if he robbed the bank, I would have known about it. Hmm, interesting. Well, there's another bank robbery that happened with a gorilla mask and, uh, and helium balloons. And it was all over the papers and the TV and the news. And you being a comedian and all, I bet you thought that was pretty funny. I said, well, I don't know how funny bank robbery is, but yeah, I'm familiar with it. So I basically lied. I blew them off. And I thought, okay. He goes, well, we'll be in touch if we need anything. Okay. So I'm 2,000 miles away. I don't think I'm going to hear anything from him. About two weeks later, I get off the air at 10 o'clock in the morning. And my uh, general manager of the radio station comes in the studio and said, Toby, the FBI is here to see you. Do you have any idea what it is? And I said, hmm, well, I have a clue, I think. I'll let you know how it is. So they took me in his office, and they sat me down. They said, all right, smartass, we're going to cut the crap. We think you had something to do with that second bank robbery. We think your buddy did the first one, but the, the one with the gorilla mask, that's the one that everybody was talking about. It was funny. Well, he's dancing around. I said, well, you had a car accident. You couldn't walk very well. We've got your medical records right here. We're going to take you back to Milwaukee. We're going to prosecute you. You, and you're going to do jail time. What do you think of that, Mr. Funny Boy? And I said, I'd like to talk to a lawyer, please. Oh, yeah. Well, we can't shut you up on the radio. You're all, but now when you want us, we want you to talk. You won't talk. And they were just complete jerks about it. So one thing led to another. They flew me back to Milwaukee. I had to go through a lineup. I had to testify against my best friend and wear wire to get him to confess that he did it. And he ended up going to prison. Wow, my God. What, what happened after that? Did the friendship last? The, the last time I talked to him, I had a wire on. And we, and, he, and he said at the, the night before the trial, he told the FBI, he said, they said, not only is he saying that he didn't do the second bank robbery, he's saying by name that you did. So if something happens in that trial tomorrow that we don't know about and there's a surprise, we're going to revoke your immunity and you're going to get not only your charges, but his charges and you're going to do double time. Oh, God. And I said, buddy, you know, I told you the truth. He knows in his heart that he robbed that bank. I know in my heart that I did not rob that bank. I'm going to get sleep tonight. He is not. I said, it will all come back tomorrow. And they were, they were right up to the end. They thought I might have done it. But I didn't. And it took him a, the jury about 20 minutes to find him guilty. So that's the last time I saw him. But it was, and, and he wouldn't look me in the eye. Again, he wouldn't look me in the eye when he told me he did it. We got in the courtroom. And I said, well, how am I supposed to dress for the trial? They said, well, tomorrow is the most important day of your life. Dress accordingly. Yeah. Well, how would you dress? I, I had a suit and a tie and I got a haircut and I shaved, you know, the, the double job interview shave, the whole deal. And I walked in there looking, styling, like Ric Flair, you know, <laughs> styling and profiling. And he showed up and he had uh, sweatpants on and, a, and he had a, a stubble and he, had, he always had long hair and he had a, a ponytail and he had a, a stubble on his hair and a sweatshirt. And I'm thinking, man, you, you are going down, buddy. Yeah. I, I felt bad about it. I, when I got off, we had six and a half hours of testimony on the stand, a witness stand. And I got off, and I was probably, I don't know, 10 feet away from him when I walk off the stand. And I wanted to stop there. It's, are you happy now? I didn't say anything. I just walked out of there. And I started weeping openly. It would talk about an emotional experience. Yeah, it's got to be really rough. Yeah, testifying against your friend. Your best friend. Yeah. He was closer than my family. Now, you, you know my family situation. Yeah. I mean, you know, I got along great with my I love my brother. But I, Timbo and I were way closer than my brother and I ever were. 
because I grew up, you know, I lived that that way. I didn't live with my brother. Right. Well, yeah, it was pretty pretty intense story, and it's so, so that's the book Monkey in the Middle. Okay, so that that's where your book is. That's where the, the monkey in the middle comes with the, with the gorilla mask. And, and even as it was happening, I thought, you know, this is a movie. Oh, yeah. It, as was happening, it, it, it just is. And it's got I know everything. That it, it's got crime. It's got yeah. intrigue, friendship. If they make a movie out of it, I know there's going to be a couple of Wayans brothers playing me and Timbo. And be, <laughs> and, you know, Caitlyn Jenner will be in it and a duck, an animated duck. But I don't, I don't care. You know, I know the true story of what happened. They'll, they'll jazz it up for the movies, but I don't think it needs that much jazz it up. That's a, that's a true story. No, I don't either. It's It's got everything. Yeah, no, I think it's perfect exactly the way it is. So we'll see what happens. But ever since that, that, has, that whole thing has happened, and at the time, I was out on the road doing comedy, and there was about a six-month period where... I thought I was going to be doing jail time. I talked to my, my lawyer, and I had the lawyer was at my own expense. He was the, the one I had with my car accident. Was up because look, I'm not a criminal lawyer. Because I'll help you if I can. But he said the FBI thinks that you did it. So if you didn't, you better tell me now because they're negotiating with me as to how much prison time they're going to that you're going to do. They don't care who goes to jail. They want to close the case. They want somebody's butt in jail. They don't care who it is, and they got a bigger fish to fry than you. I said, look, I didn't do it. I'd tell you if I did, I did not. So he said, okay, we'll go with that. And at, when the proceedings got really uh, heated in the lawyer's office, when the FBI was there, I said, look, I, I want to volunteer to take uh, a lie detector test. And my lawyer said, no, no, no. And I said, yes, here, here you go. Whatever you got to do, I, I'll take it right now. And the FBI guy told me later, he goes, I've been an agent for 20 whatever years. He goes, no one has ever volunteered to take a lie detector. Yeah. Said, you, know, you know how hard that was for me when my best friend put me in that situation? I said, I'm sorry. I'm not going to jail for something I didn't do. I apologize, but he did it. So he said that really helped, helped us uh, when, you, when you volunteered to do that. He goes, we didn't, we didn't, we've never seen that before. Either that or it could be the best bluff ever. Well, that too. Yeah, it could have been. But I had no criminal record. You know, it's one of those things where, and, and, and they told me, they said, we, we, people, innocent people rob banks all the time with the intention that they're going to pay it back. You know, he said, he, he looked at him and he said, uh, okay, well, he was kind of a, a drifter in some ways. He had the job for a while and then he didn't. But then he said, we, we went to his, his wife was a, a FedEx driver. So we, we went into to her office and they said, it's a, it's a tactic. And the FBI guy told me this. He goes, we think your husband has been robbing a, robbing banks. So she called him, honey, the FBI was here. They think you're robbing banks. Now, he didn't tell her this. So this is totally new to her. So the FBI said, we knew that when we went to her, she would call him. We knew that. So we're tapping the phone. What we wanted to know is who he would call after she called him. Right. He called you. We looked you up. A comedian, car accident. You'd be the perfect victim to need to rob a bank and pay it back later. He goes, we thought you did it. And, you know, you, you, you've proved yourself not, but you were a typical suspect of someone that would pull something like that off. Yeah, you fit the profile perfectly. Fit the profile perfectly. So it doesn't mean you're a lifetime criminal, but you needed money. It was a way to get it, blah, blah, blah. You did a funny spin on it like a comedian would do. So it worked out. But uh, if anybody can top that story, and I've told <laughs> it, I told the reason I wrote a book is because I was sick of telling the story. Tell me that bank story again. <laughs> some, some part of it wrong. And then I would have to clean, no, this is how it happened. So if you want to get the book, if I can plug it, I, it's at Eckhart's Press, E-C-K-H-A-R-T-Z Press.com. And uh, it, I, I guarantee it is a true story. And no one has ever not enjoyed it. They said, wow, I thought it would be good, but it's riveting. I couldn't put it down. 
It is, my God. So is the book like the whole, is it just that incident or is it like your whole friendship? Well, it's our whole life. A lot of the Gramp stories are in there. I have, a, a you know, some more. And just, I, I wanted to set it up that, you know, the, the whole dented can angle. I didn't come, and Timbo didn't either. We, we come lower middle class and we, we had each other. You know, we went through so many things together. And to have to go and testify against your best friend with that much history was so unfair on his part and so painful on my part. Right. I have nightmares about it to this day. Oh, God. That I'm on stage and he comes out of the crowd with a gun and points it at me. You know, he threatened to shoot me. He never, he never shot me. But we did, we did go. He bought a gun and we, we went and shot with it several times. It was legal at a firing range. We didn't do anything illegal. It was all, you know, and the FBI said, it's like, uh, well, does he have a gun? I said, yeah, you, you know, he does. Number one. And number two, I'm going to tell you that I was with him when he bought it and we went and shot it. So I can't prove that my fingerprints are not on that gun. I can't prove that. Right. Exactly. And they said, well, that doesn't make you, that doesn't put you in a very good light. I said, well, it might not, but that's what happened. That's what it is. It's the truth. Yeah. That's what happened, brother. I can't top that one. That's my, that's my big story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for telling it. That was, that was, uh, that was quite phenomenal. Well, I sure appreciate you having me on. And if there's anything I could ever do for you, uh, uh, I do teach comedy classes. If anybody's watching and they want to learn what it's like, it's a hard, it's a hard gimmick. Yeah. I can imagine. It's, the, it's a funnier you. Y-O-U.com. And if that's something that you want to do with your life, I thought I, I thought it's what I all I wanted to do. And uh it's it's a lot harder than I thought it was, but I did live my dream. Yeah, well that's that's awesome. And you know, congratulations for, for doing that. I appreciate it, brother. All right. Well, yeah, thank you so much, Dobby. You've been an excellent guest. I loved hearing all your stories. Um good luck with your book. Uh good luck with um everything else and uh have a great have a great weekend. Thanks, David. I appreciate you having me on, man. I'll talk again. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Would you like to be a guest? Please send a story about your embarrassing family member to embarrassingfamily at gmail.com.